necessary condition to faith for receiving forgiveness from the eternal penalty of sin and for receiving eternal life. That sounds noble and good, but the Bible only presents one condition, one necessary condition for the receiving of eternal life, and that is faith. Faith alone in the proper object. Faith alone in Christ alone. When we exercise faith in Jesus Christ, we are trusting Him to save us by grace and apart from any works that we could do. To call upon the non-Christian to make a commitment to Jesus' Lordship is getting the cart before the horse. But is there any place for this concept of commitment to Christ in general and the idea of commitment to the Lordship of Christ in specific, is there any place for that? Of course there is. Absolutely there is. Once we have received eternal life, we then have the responsibility to make a commitment to follow Jesus in committed discipleship. After we have received Christ, then we have the responsibility to make a commitment to follow Christ. But we must be careful of the order. Faith alone in Christ alone for eternal life. Then, commitment to the Lordship of Christ as a subsequent step in Christian discipleship. We must keep the order specific. At the end of Nehemiah chapter 9, we read these words. Now, because of all this, we are making an agreement in writing. And on the sealed document are the names of our leaders, our Levites, and our priests. The first 27 verses of chapter 10 record the names of those who signed this document. The names include the heads of 21 priestly families, 17 Levites, and 44 heads of prominent families. We see that in verses 1 through 27. It's not until we get to verses 28 through 39 that we find out what it is they're signing. What is this document? You'll recall that the Jews had been convicted of their sins. They had confessed their sins. And now they're going to take the next step and make a commitment to follow Yahweh in obedience. Again, you see the order. Now, these people were already saved. But they have been convicted of their sin, they confess their sin, and then they make the commitment. Specifically, in these verses, in chapter 10, they make a commitment to obey the Mosaic Law in verses 29, or 28 and 29. They make a commitment not to intermarry with pagans in verse 30. They get, make a commitment to keep the Sabbath and the sabbatical year in verse 31. They make a commitment to support the temple service financially in verses 32 and 30, through 34. They make a commitment to give the first fruits to God in verses 35 through 37. And then they make a commitment to pay their basic tithe tax in verse 37b through 39. So the idea of making a formal, that's the key word, the idea of making a formal commitment to obey God and to follow Him in obedience is a biblical concept. We may not put it in writing like they did, but the concept of commitment is very valid. This is not simply an Old Testament concept. It's a New Testament 
idea as well. The New Testament explores this concept. There comes a point in time in a believer's life where the believer, the believer, must decide whether or not either he or she is going to get with God's program or not. And this concept is unpacked in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So actually, that's where we're going to spend most all of our time tonight, is over in Romans, the New Testament illustration, or the New Testament exposition, of what happens at the end of Nehemiah chapter 9, and also in Nehemiah chapter 10. In Nehemiah chapter 9, it says they signed the document. Nehemiah chapter 10 tells us who signed it, and what they signed up for. It's a document of commitment. This seems almost strange to us that we would actually sign something that says, I'm going to commit to follow the Mosaic Law. Actually, everything else in there is a commitment as just parts of those things. We don't typically do that. That's why sometimes these things don't make a lot of sense to us, at least on the surface. But there is a New Testament teaching about the idea of the, of the New Testament believer, the believer, one who has already testified, making a formal commitment to follow Christ. Particularly, we find that in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. These are very familiar verses, but read along with me. Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable the Epistle of the Romans is organized, like many of Paul's epistles, with a theological section and an applicational section. The theological section of Romans runs from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11. Chapter 12 begins the application section of the book of Romans. That's why Paul begins it, I urge you therefore. Therefore, what do you mean? It's kind of this little joke in your Bible study methods class. If you see a therefore, you have to go back and look and see what it's there for. Well, that therefore is, is summarizing based on all the material we had before, what am I going to do? Well, in fact, in view of the fact that we've been justified, Paul's terminology for being declared righteous, not by works, but by grace through faith, believers are to demonstrate our commitment to God by presenting our bodies, refusing to conform to cultural norms, and by being transformed by the renewal of our mind. Based upon everything that Paul said in Romans chapters 1 through 11, and we've studied these before, that's the materials available if you'd like to get it. Based upon everything that he taught in Romans chapter 1 through 11, primarily about the idea that the righteousness of God is something that we need and how we get it. Based upon all of that, then what is my responsibility as someone who has been saved by grace through faith? Yes, I was saved by grace through faith, but what is my responsibility based upon the fact that I have been saved by grace through faith? That's going to be Romans chapter 12 all the way through the end of the book. Primarily 12 through 15, but all the way through the end of the book. So when Paul starts off, I exhort, or in New American Standard, I urge you, therefore, this indicates the character not just of this opening paragraph, but of the final five chapters. This begins the application section of Romans. Exhortation is not completely absent from the earlier chapters. There were commands in the earlier chapters of Romans. But by and large, the earlier chapters of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, were exposition. 
And then chapters 12 through 16 are exhortations. We've been through any New Testament studies. This is not old, this is not new material to you, it's old hat. But I wanted to establish that up front based upon the fact, and this is really key, this is so important. I think it'll clear up a lot of misgivings and misunderstandings. Based upon the fact that we have been saved by grace through faith, then based upon that, I have a responsibility to act on that in committed discipleship to Jesus Christ. Why? The commitment doesn't come over here. God's the one that made the commitment. What we do is trust Jesus Christ by grace through faith. We're helpless over here to make any kind of commitment. The commitment comes after salvation. So, yes, commitment is a good word. So many of us, in my tradition, are so careful not to add anything to saving faith. We come with the empty hands of saving faith. We don't add money. We don't add church membership. We don't add baptism. We don't add a commitment to obey. So many of us are so concerned with that, and we stress that so much that our audiences sometimes get the wrong idea that there's something wrong with the idea of Christian commitment or the concept. No, there's nothing wrong with it at all. It's expected of you. All of us have that responsibility. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 deal with the Christian's most important relationship. And that means our relationship to God. We all have many relationships in this life that are so important to us. Our spouse, our parents, our children, our friends. And all those are significant, extremely significant. But the most important relationship we have is to God. If we ever get someone or something in a place of significance over and above our relationship to God, that makes that individual an idol, and they can't handle it. Francis Schaeffer said in a book called Two Spirituality that one thing that destroys many, many fine Christian marriages are unrealistic expectations. We think that the person we're married to somehow should be perfect. We place them on the pedestal, after all. And then when something comes up that they're not perfect, we whip them down from the pedestal. And too many Christian marriages fail because we were expecting something of ourselves that we couldn't, that they couldn't offer. They can't offer perfection, but guess what? You can't either. So we all want to get off our high horses, and there's only one person we can expect perfection from, that's Jesus. So what Paul's doing in the beginning of this application section, again, based upon all this incredible information about justification being by faith, apart from any work, he's saying there's a relationship commitment that we need to make. When I do a wedding service, we are challenging two people to make a public a commitment that they have to each other. Presumably, they've talked about it before. And they, they understand that they're about to make a public proclamation of a private commitment that they've already made. They make it, they make it formal. So our relationship with God is the commitment that Paul is speaking of, and it's the most important and foundational relationship that we have, and it governs all of our conduct. So before he gets into the specifics of Christian conduct, he said there's something that we need to do first. The thing that we need to do first before we get into the specifics of do this and don't do that, we need to have an overall commitment to the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord of our lives. That He's the boss. That He has a right to make the rules. You know, to many of us, that seems like second nature. To many, to many other people, though, it's not. To some people, the idea that somebody else, even God, the Creator, has the right to rule and has the right to say, no, you cannot do that. That violates my holiness. Some people just vibrate with that. 
But that's God. So this is the first thing that Paul wants us to do. Paul's already actually called in Romans the Christian to present himself or herself to God. That was all the way back in chapter 6, verses 13 to 19. But that's a preview of coming to Christ. Now he repeats that duty by making it our most important obligation. In verse 1, the term therefore draws the conclusion, in my view, from all that Paul has said previously in the epistle, not just as some might say, just, not just chapters 9 through 11. Chapter 12 begins the application section for the entire epistle, based on what's everything that we've said. Paul says, there is something that I'm going to charge you with. Justification has been freely provided. Condemnation is universal. Remember we saw that in chapters 1 through 3 when we studied Romans. There are three categories of persons that need justification. Three categories of persons that need the righteousness of God. They don't have it, but need it. The first category was the immoral person. Paul outlined how an immoral person needs the righteousness of God. They lack it and they need it. And we often stand up and say, it to that. That fornicator, that homosexual, that lesbian, they need the righteousness of God. Paul says, well, I'm glad you agree with that. Because there's a second category of person that needs the righteousness of God. And that's the so-called moral person. The moral person needs the righteousness of God as well because, as Paul will say, the very same things you condemn them of, you do in yourself. You may not do them overtly, you may do them mentally, and it may not be the same exact category of sin, but in the, in the overall category of sin, we all sin, we all fall short of God's glory. We all need God. So, not only does the immoral person need the righteousness of God, but the moral person needs it too. Now, there's one more person in this room if you can picture that, that Paul wants to speak to that might think that they have an out. You'd think that that would cover everybody, right? Moral and immoral, that would cover everybody. But there's one person that's probably sitting in the corner thinking, you know what, I agree with that. I certainly agree with that the immoral person needs the Savior. And in fact, I see the point. I agree that the moral person needs the Savior. In fact, I do. And that would have been the view of Paul's audience. Because there were Jews in Paul's audience that felt like that they were justified before God because of their racial association with God. So that's the third category of person Paul deals with. He says, oh yes, my fellow Jew, by the way, you need the righteousness of God as well. Because although you have the oracles of God, not only did you not present them to other people, but you didn't obey them yourself. So everyone needs the righteousness of God. After he establishes that, he then moves to establish the fact that the righteousness of God is received. We are justified, to use Paul's term, by grace through faith. No works whatsoever. So the therefore... I urge you, therefore, in verse 1, look back to all of that. The reason I keep bringing that up is that is critical in the order. If we're going to think properly, Paul has already established that. Now, based upon all that, then what am I supposed to do as a believer? I urge you, therefore, brethren. When Paul uses the term brethren, he's speaking to believers unless the context is extremely specific otherwise. And it is specific in chapters 9 through 11 he calls them, because he calls them my brethren according to the flesh. In other words, my racial brethren. But otherwise, the term brethren is used of believers. So he is calling upon believers to make this commitment to Jesus Christ. So we all have a need. We all have been justified freely apart from works. And so Paul urges us, this very beautiful word, 
Paul Coelho is somewhere between a command and a command. He's urging us. We would say he entreats us. But I like the word urge. I think it works. It's a tender expression. He didn't want us to do this because we were ordered to. Can't we be ordered by any other human being to make a commitment to Christ and have to do it? This has got to come from within us. You've got to decide individually to make a commitment to Christ. Your spouse can't decide for you. Your parents can't decide for you. Your children can't decide for you. Your friends can't. It's something we have to do. So he made this appeal as strong as he could possibly make it without command. The phrase, by the mercies of God, refers to all that he's revealed early on in this epistle about grace, about mercy. Mercy denotes the quality in God that led him to deliver us from our sin and misery. It's a very close cousin to the concept of grace. But it's not exactly the same. Mercy expresses deliverance from condemnation that we deserve. I deserve condemnation. Mercy spares me from that. Grace is the bestowal of blessings that I don't deserve. Mercy is not giving me something that I do deserve. Grace is giving me something, in a positive sense, that I don't deserve. So Paul is going to call upon us to sacrifice ourselves to God because He's been merciful to us. Then he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. In the Hebrew mindset, the idea of the body was of a representation of the whole person. Paul is urging the presentation of all of us, the whole of us, not just the physical body. For the Christian, the physical body is a partner of the soul in doing work for Jesus Christ, in ministering to Christ. That's the Christian view. Some Christians have unknowingly adopted a platonic view of the body and the soul, and they don't even realize it. The view of the, of the Greek philosopher led by Plato was that the body is actually an enemy of the soul. And the quicker we could get rid of it, the better it would, the better it would be. And that, some Christians actually have that idea, too, and that's not, that's not the case. It shouldn't be our goal in life to get through this life as quickly as we can get through it so that we can get to our resurrection body and be in heaven forever in a place with no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death, the old things that pass away. It's a healing process. But we shouldn't try to rush through this life. We've got a certain number of minutes, seconds, days, years. We've got just a limited number. And when those are finished, they're finished. When they run out, if you can't buy it, it's an extra minute. When they're finished, they're finished. It shouldn't be the Christian's goal to race through them as quickly as we can get through them and get out of this body. I know some of you have bad knees, bad backs, bad eyes, bad hearts, bad livers, bad kidneys, and you think, well, I just as soon get out of this when we get to my next. But let's don't rush through it. That's not the goal of the Christian, because this body, the only one we're ever going to have, at least on this earth, at this time, this body is a partner with our soul to glorify God. On this earth. After we're finished with this body, we go on to heaven, but our opportunity, for example, to worship on earth and to serve God on earth is finished. And there will be a judgment of us and evaluation of what do we do in the time that we are in this body. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, 
the seat in the judgment seat of Christ or not, but we will be evaluated, we will be paid back, we'll be rewarded for the deeds done in the body. Paul says we need to present this body to God. He means all of us. A lot of us, when we decide to make a commitment to Christ, we really don't make a commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I'm talking about after salvation. After salvation. We really don't do it. We make a partial commitment. We say, for example, you know, okay, Father, I realize in order for me to have a, a marriage of contentment and effective marriage and a marriage that fulfills the, your plan for my life, I know you need to be that. So I'm going to make sure you're in my marriage. So I'm going to commit my marriage to you. So we say, you know, as far as business goes, you don't handle that. I'm going to commit my marriage to you. I'm going to commit, say, raising my kids to you. But in business, I'm going to kind of do whatever I want to do. Now, we wouldn't actually come out and say that verbally, but that's what's demonstrated by our actions. What God wants is all of us. Now, the fine thing we thought we just rose up just a little bit. You mean i got to commit all of it? Not just what I want to commit. I've got to commit my whole body to you. Oh, that means my time is yours. That means my health is yours. That means wherever you want me to go, I'm going to go. Whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do. That's exactly what Paul's talking about. You see why you can't ask an unbeliever to do that? They have no ability to do that. The Holy Spirit is the one that's got to enable us to do that. That's a supernatural thing when we make this commitment. And that's why it comes in the beginning of the application section to the brethren, to the reader. Your body is not the enemy of the soul. That's a Platonic idea. That's not a Christian idea. The word present is an aorist imperative, which normally means a one-time thing. It's a command that you do it one time and then it's done forever. At one point in time, we decide to present our bodies to God and that's it. However, the aorist imperative doesn't necessarily, it can mean that, but it doesn't necessarily carry a once-for-all meaning in every case. Paul here is using the Aris imperative to indicate the need to make a commitment, the responsibility to make a commitment, the commitment as a principle. It may not be in writing, like people in Nehemiah chapter 10 did. It may not be around a campfire, like many of us did. When we were kids, I'm going to make a commitment to live my life unto the Lord. Unto the Lord. That's the thing that everybody in here, at least at one time or another, either formally or informally, has made a commitment to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ. I doubt you would be here tonight. Have at least along the line somewhere you have not made that commitment. I, I made that commitment. And when I did it, I, was, I remember the specific month or the day, but I remember I was 21 years old. And my pastor, who had a way with words sometimes, did something that really only he could get away with, and he, he made this speech on a Sunday morning, this challenge, or this exhortation on a Sunday morning, that you people either need to get with the program, get with God's program, or get the heck out of here. Now, there are very few people that can pull that off, but it worked with me. Because that's why I was sitting there, I was thinking, you know what? He's right. I'm a Christian, but I'm not sure that I've ever really made a commitment to follow God. Again, I was a Christian. Had I died that morning before I got there, I would have gone to heaven. I was justified. I had been declared righteous. 
but I don't know that the whole world shut down and say, you know, I'm going to follow what Jesus Christ says and teaches. Well, I do what that says. That doesn't mean that I've lived a life of perfection from that time until now. Those that, love, that know me and love me the best can amen that, but you don't have to. <laughs> and I appreciate you for not doing that. Most of us are that way. Very few of us make a commitment one day to follow Christ, and then that's the end of it. Most of us make that commitment, and then we touch purgatory. Hopefully not long standable, but sometimes that happens. And then we may come back again. And have to say, you know what? That's not the direction I should be going. I need to follow Christ. So just because you make the commitment doesn't mean there won't be failure. Doesn't mean there won't be bumps in the road or even detours in the road. But the idea is we have a responsibility to make this commitment. And I'm sure all of you have done something similar as well. Maybe it's not dramatic. Maybe you didn't write it down. But guess what? If you did, there's nothing wrong with that. That's simply demonstrated. They did it in Nehemiah's day. They wrote down their commitment. And I think that was helpful for them. You don't necessarily have to tell someone else about your commitment. There's one person needs to know about your commitment, and that's the one that you commit to. Well, sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it's helpful to be in a small group or have a some sort of very close Christian friend that you can say, you know what? I want you to watch me. I want you to be my accountability partner. And watch me when it comes to these things. But I've got to tell you, you can fool an accountability partner. I've been in accountability groups. I've led accountability groups. You can fool those people. But you can't fool God. God's the ultimate accountability partner. Everybody else is a supplement. So few, if any, believers make a decision to commit a discipleship without ever wavering. I never met someone who made that decision and then the rest of their life was a, was a straight line towards the Lord. We all have waves in parts of the world. In Israel, the whole burnt offering, which represented the entire person, was burned up completely on the altar. There's nothing left. You see this picture. And Paul's referring to that. When we, when we talk about presenting ourselves, we're saying, okay, here I am, Lord. I'm up on that altar. Use me up. I'm not going to take part of this thing. You can't, do, you can't mess with that. Do anything you want, but not this area of my life. When we're talking about a commitment to Jesus Christ, we're talking about obeying Him faithfully and completely. Once again, I know we're not going to do this perfectly. We all will have bumps. And when you come to a bump in the road, it doesn't mean that you were never saved in the first place. Just as that sacrifice is to be burned up completely, we're to be burned up completely. Sometimes, People talk about being sold out for Jesus Christ. Not a bad term. To totally abandon ourselves to Christ. Not a bad way of putting it. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. Isn't that interesting? The God's not interested in pardon. Not interested in pardon. He's not interested in whatever I'm willing to give him. He has this interesting idea that I owe all of it to him. Not to purchase my salvation, not to pay him back, but he's already bought me. And he's not really interested in me just giving part of me to him. He wants 100% commitment. But you know what you're going to get for that 100% commitment? I know what's holding, I know what holds us all back. Because we think if we give 100%, then we're somehow going to lose out. That's just the way we think. That's part of our flesh. Our old thing nature tells us that. 
But you know what you're going to get in return for your 100% commitment to Christ? That's where it lies. It doesn't lie in partial commitment. Your partial commitment to Christ is not commitment. He wants all of you. But in return, he says, if, if you give me all of you and you do things my way and not your way, not perfectly, but consistently, if you'll do them my way, then that's where you're going to find happiness and contentment. To present our bodies, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, that's the only thing that's acceptable to God. Always. Which is your spiritual service of worship. This term, spiritual service of worship, is probably not the best way to put that. It's a little misleading. Perhaps it should be translated your reasonable service, or maybe your rational service. I think that better translates Paul's thought into the English language. The, the Greek term is logikos, which means pertaining to something that's genuine in the sense of being true to the real and essential nature of something. In other words, something that's rational, something that's reasonable, or if you want perhaps a, a more feral word, something that's logical. Now what Paul's saying here, you already know everything, you've already been presented with all this great truth in chapters 1 through 11, about how you were saved by grace through faith. You were justified by faith. You've already been presented with that. All the incredible things God's done for you. Based upon that, what's the next reasonable step? What's the next logical step? To hold some of you back or to put yourself before God so you can have whatever you want from me? I'm yours. You do what you want with me. He's asking them, he's urging them to make that commitment based upon the fact that they've already been the recipient of God's magnificent grace. It's the logical thing to do after your say, Paul says. It's the reasonable thing to do. It's the rational thing to do after you've been saved by grace through faith, by the mercies of God, to turn your life over to Christ completely. You save me, I'm yours. But they are separate acts. Paul is not adding a separate and necessary condition to salvation. He's not loading the gospel down with commitment. It's simple faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. The reason we have to bring this up, first of all, is the subject of Nehemiah chapter 10, and I'm committed to expositional preaching. But the reason that I stress it so much is that in popular Christianity today, the idea of the commitment being part of the saving act is the majority view. But just because something is a very common view doesn't make it the right view. In fact, if you just wanted to go by numbers, people who come under the broad heading of Christianity, sheer numbers, then we would have to say salvation is by grace through faith and work. Because that's the view of Rome, and Rome has more numbers. And we should just make that clear. But do you think that's the case? I don't either. Because I've got verses here that say we are saved by grace through faith apart from us. For by grace you've been saved, through faith, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that anyone should boast. There's clear teaching that denies that. I want you to see, and the reason I keep going back through the structure of Romans, I want you to get this, that you're saved first, and then comes the commitment. You cannot do that as an unbeliever. It takes the Holy Spirit. Based upon what God has mercifully and graciously done for us, it's a reasonable thing for us to recognize our responsibility and commit ourselves completely to Him. 
it's reasonable, it's rational. If you prefer the word logical, it's logical. Committed worship, committed service of Jesus Christ is the reasonable response to the revelation Paul has given in chapter 1. First salvation, then commitment to spiritual service. One logically, reasonably, rationally follows the other. In, in verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 1 deals with making the commitment. Verse 2 deals with maintaining it. Verse 1, making it. Verse 2, maintaining it. Back to verse 1 for just a moment. You may be saying, well, I wonder if I, I'm, not even, I'm never even approached that. How might I do that? How might I make a commitment? I would suggest making it through prayer. I would suggest going to God and saying, listen, Father, I, I just realized I've never really dealt with this issue of giving all of myself. And through the Holy Spirit's help, I want to lay myself on that altar. I want to give you all of me. body of correction. Part of you is going to hold back. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do. You're not going to do it without the Holy Spirit's help. The Holy Spirit has to motivate that decision. Again, that's why John Bruder cannot do it. Because the heart is full of hope. So you make that commitment. Maybe you need to pray it. If you'd like to do like the people in Nehemiah chapter 10 and you want to keep a journal, you want to write in that journal, then, that, then have had it. There's nothing wrong with that. If you have a friend that you're close enough to that you trust with your life, with your deepest, darkest secrets and your, your greatest joys, and you want to have lunch with them tomorrow, say, you know what? I just want to tell you something. I, I've been convicted by Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to commit my life. I'm going to commit obedience in my life to Jesus Christ. That's okay, too. However you want to do it, but the primary reference, the primary person you need to be talking to is God himself. That's where the commitment comes from. But in verse 2, we see Paul stressing the maintenance of that commitment. Both things are important. Both things are important. The present tense of the Greek text in verse 2 indicates our continuing responsibility. In contrast to verse 1, which expressed the principle, the idea, the concept. Don't be conformed to this world. The verb or the term translated conformed is used only here in the New Testament and in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. There it reads, as obedient children, that as obedient children, as ones who have made a commitment, don't be conformed to the former lust which were years of ignorance. Peter said exactly the same thing. You're already saved. Now don't be conformed. We are called upon to minister to our culture. There's no doubt about it. But we're not called upon to change that to help change the culture. We don't need to let the culture change us. It's a fine line that we walk in. But we need to be very careful with it. We don't conform to the culture. Christians should be such a light to the world that the culture conforms to Christianity. In today's culture, it's anything like that. Christians are conforming in droves to the culture. All under the umbrella of ministering to that culture. 
listen, again, I am all for ministering to the culture. We cannot fulfill the Great Commission unless we minister to the culture we find ourselves in. But watch, and I don't mean to be crude, but Christ didn't become a prostitute in order to minister to prostitutes. He filled the second bed. He picked them up out of the dust and showed them something good. Don't be conformed to this world. You can tell I'm, I'm making a synonymous attachment between the idea of world and culture. The world here is the spirit of our age that seeks to exclude God from this life. Our culture wants nothing to do with God. It wants to worship. They don't want to worship the true God. They don't have to sacrifice anything. They want God on their terms, not on His terms. The world seeks to squeeze us into its mold. We should be continually renewing our minds so that we'll be alert to this. We need to be aware of what's out there on the planet. I am all for Christians looking at internet news sites about cultural realities, about what's going on in the Middle East, about what's going on in the United States. I am totally against Christians divorcing themselves from our culture saying, I want nothing to do with that. I'm much happier if I don't know anything that's going on. You may be, but you're not fulfilling your responsibility as a Christian. How are you going to minister to the culture if you know nothing about it? You need to know something about it. And you've got to be careful how far you get into it. But you at least, have a, at least need to have a knowledge of where the culture stands. If you don't know that most people in this culture don't even believe that there's something such as the, the entities as right and wrong, you're going to have a difficult time ministering to this culture because you're going to be making truth claims and they're going to be thinking in the back of their mind, well, that's fine, but that's not fine. We need to minister to people where we are. In order to do that, we have to know what it is they're doing. So we need to minister to this culture that tries to squeeze us into their mold, that tries to squeeze God out. And how can we do that? We've got to continually renew our minds. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Not conformed, but transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. That also can be understood as demonstrate what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. That doesn't describe the world. What the world is doing is not good, acceptable, and perfect to God. But if we're going to understand what our responsibility is, yes, we do need to know something of the world. But that, if that's all we know, we wouldn't have the standard where we would be able to see the world's wrong. We wouldn't be able to say that's wrong unless we know what the Word of God says is right. The key item and the transforming of our being from minimally committed disciples of Jesus Christ, the maximally committed disciples of Jesus Christ, is to immerse ourselves in God's Word on a regular basis. And that's why I am totally opposed to the newer philosophy of ministry that says the study of the Word of God is, should not necessarily be simple and long. It's okay to do it. Do it in small groups. Listen to the radio. Do some self-study. But not on not in church on Sunday morning. Now, most churches don't have a Wednesday night Bible study. Very few churches even used to have a Sunday night Bible study. If we're to transform, if we're to be transformed, 
the Holy Spirit's going to do it through his word. And we need to be in it every day because this transformation process is a process. It doesn't just happen once. I knew somebody one time that says, listen, I don't need to learn the word of God anymore. I've got that down. The Apostle Paul didn't say that in his life. Remember what he said? Pray for my parchment. I paraphrase because I've got to study it. I wonder what he said. That's, that's the man who said that. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service or your logical, reasonable, rational service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 are extremely important verses in this church. They express our most important responsibility to God, namely submitting to His Lordship over our lives. We need to recognize who Jesus Christ is. He is the boss. He is King. He is the Lord. And if I'm going to be content in this life, I've got to submit to Him. To the degree that we hold back, that's the degree that we're not submitting. Ideally, we should make a commitment to become committed disciples of Jesus Christ as close to the salvation event as possible. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes there's a lag time. And we all have a responsibility to do that. But I want you to notice one more time that Paul is addressing this exhortation to people who are already believers. Dedication to God is a response to the mercy of God that we receive in salvation. It's not a condition for receiving that mercy. It's a voluntary commitment that every Christian should make out of love for our Savior. But unfortunately, it's not a commitment that every Christian will make. Every Christian should make it, but every Christian won't necessarily make it. It is possible, sadly, it is possible to be a Christian and be on our way to heaven without ever making this commitment to Jesus Christ because it's voluntary. In view of the fact that we have been justified, declared righteous, not by works but by grace through faith, believers are to demonstrate our commitment to God by presenting our bodies, refusing to conform to the cultural norms and standards of this world, and by doing 